0: There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you're looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now, here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is
1: Chris Cooper. And welcome to another edition of the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Uh, I'm really excited today to uh, introduce you to uh, an incredible guest. Um, We're going to be talking to uh, poet, author, and speaker David White. And before I do that, though, I'd like to say a big thank you to my uh, guest last week, to David Fox-Pitt. David's a good friend of mine uh, now. And uh, we talked about his book, Positiverosity, and his incredible lessons and life journey Uh, including hosting some really um, amazing extreme events in Scotland that he's done for many years uh, and raising over 40 million pounds for charity. But I actually love David and uh, his book, Positive Verosity, gives all sorts of ideas, thoughts about how to really get on and uh, in, in, in business, but in life. Now, on the Business Elevation Show, we really like to help you to elevate your thinking. And as an engagement leadership and team development consultant, coach and speaker, um, I love to introduce people to you who can really make you, um, you know, think differently and have uh, new ideas and concepts um, that can help you uh, to um, develop through life and uh, through your work. Um, I'd love to say a big thank you to Libby Wagner today, who introduced me to David White. Uh, Libby's also a poet, author, and leadership expert. She's been on the show uh, a a couple of times before, last time with uh, Steve Morris and Owen O'Sullivan, and we talked about the artistry of engagement. So let me tell you a little bit about David before I, I talk to him. Now, David White's life as a poet has created... You know, a readership and listenership in three normally mutually exclusive areas, the literal world of readings that most poets inhabit, the psychological and theological worlds of philosophical inquiry, and the world of vocation, work and organisational leadership. Uh, Now, David is an associate fellow at Syed uh, Business School at the University of Oxford, though he he lives in the United States now. He's one of the few poets to take his perspectives on creativity into the field of organisational development where he works with many European, American and international companies. Now, he uses his poetry in a really sort of thoughtful way to illustrate how we can foster qualities of courage and engagement. You've heard me talk about engagement many times because I feel very passionate about this area and qualities needed if we're to respond to today's call for increased creativity and adaptability in the workplace. And his work helps us on the understanding of the nature of individual and organisational change, particularly through his unique perspectives on conversational leadership. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and I really um it's a real pleasure. I've heard about David's work many times over the years, and I actually, I'm truly grateful of this opportunity um for him to talk to him today and and have an impact on my life because um you know sometimes um, the the right people uh, come into your uh, listening at certain points in your life. And I remember um, you know somebody once telling me that they'd been on one of David's workshops, and incredibly, uh, as it was about to start, um, one of the most famous movie directors in the world arrived by a helicopter with his wife. And it just shows the attraction that he has. The, Pat Conway, the author of Prince of Tides, once wrote that David White makes the reading of poetry like a matter of life or death. So a huge welcome to David White.
2: Lovely. Pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you, David. Really wonderful to talk with you as well. I'd love to start the interview today, just finding out a little bit about your background. I mean, you know, I'm intrigued how you've um, come to do what you do. And, you know, tell us a bit about your childhood, maybe, and you know, where did this love of
2: poetry come <clears throat> from? I'm sure it came from my uh, m- mother, if, if anything was passed, from my parents. Although, uh, uh, my Irish mother, although my, uh, my uh, father, come home from the pub uh, on the sunday afternoon in traditional fashion and uh and he used to recite uh words of daffodils in the kitchens in the kitchen of the house and it was the one time when he would wave his arms about as a stolid yorkshireman you know and uh so it was a it was a kind of indication of the physical embodiment that uh, poetry involves you know and um, so I still love that poem. I was just reading it yesterday, actually, and remembering my father in the kitchen. And then I have uh, <clears throat> memories of my mother at night, you know, literally at the foot of the bed in classic fashion, uh, reciting uh, Irish poems to me and uh, telling stories. And uh, I just, I think I had an, I mean, I think I was just made that way, too. I was, uh, I always saw poetry as a kind of, way of breaking the secret code of life. Many of the things that people were not speaking about in the everyday could be said through this art form. And uh, I do remember when I was 13 or 14 years old, uh, pulling down my first volume of really serious poetry, which I remember was by a fellow Yorkshireman, uh, Ted Hughes and uh, Tom Gunn. It was a joint authorship. And uh, I, I literally had to stretch tiptoe to get it. I just got it between my two the edges of, of two fingers, and then I pulled it off and caught it in my hands. And then I started reading it, and I really felt as if I'd been as if I'd been kidnapped, you know, as if I'd been abducted by a passing hawk and carried off. It was a very very powerful physical experience. And what I said to myself was, you know, these these are adults who've actually kept the primary. The primary vision of childhood into adulthood. I probably used different language than that to myself at that age, but that was the experience. I don't need to remember, and if, there, if listeners remember, when you were a child, there were quite often times when listening to the to the adult world and what they were speaking about, you. Uh, I remember saying to myself, "These people are crazy." You know, they've really forgotten what's essential in life. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> And I really did see adulthood as a, as a kind of amnesia that people fell into and when i when I started really I'd written poetry since I was little, but when I started reading other poets seriously both at school and at home when I was twelve or thirteen, um, I really felt like this was this was a, a code to life this is a way of keeping uh, a primary conversation alive that the exigencies and Stresses and besiegments of existence, whether you're in work or in your personal life, uh, uh, can can just roll over us and 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 uh, erase an avalanche over our lives and uh, erase something that's really precious. The reason why we're working, the reason why we're in a marriage, the reason why we had children in the first place, you know, the reason uh, why we're uh, we're in life at all. So. And to me, that's the central harvest. And I'm working on a book at the moment looking at seven thresholds for deepening the conversation in the workplace and, uh, and at home and in your heart and mind. And uh, these are ancient thresholds. Uh, no, one's, no one's put them together, really, in this way. Uh, but the last threshold is, uh, is what I call harvest, which is uh, the, ability, the ability to bring in the harvest of all your labors and all your endeavors and all the reasons you're, you're killing yourself. As a parent, you know, or, or as a as a worker bee in a, in a corporation or as an entrepreneur, you know, what, uh, do you actually take time to enjoy the birdsong and uh, the sky and uh, the faces of your nearest and dearest or loved ones, you know? Do you, tell, do you actually uh, experience life as you're going along or do you have your life... Uh, as some uh, uh, place that uh, you're uh, you're waiting to enter when all of this is done, you know, when when the last cup in the kitchen is washed up, when you've finally done all of your projects, when you're when the kids are through school, when you're retired, um, when you're dead. Perhaps it's a lot easier when you're dead and it's all out of the way. <laughs> That's a good time to get to your life. <laughs> but often that that is actually the, the foundational dynamic. So no no, not when we're dead, when we're when we're still alive, you know. How do you keep the great questions alive while you're doing the everyday? Yeah.
1: That's quite uh yeah, it's quite it's sad, you know, sad to think of, I mean, of life as almost like a conveyor belt uh, that you're you're moving through. And you know, is um I think what I'm taking from what you're saying <clears> is that uh, it's about you know really taking the time to enjoy the journey rather than the destination is that what, what i'm hearing
2: yes and that's you know that's become almost a cliche but it's uh, it's actually connected to our ability in business to be uh to be successful and to be a good leader and to have the big perspective whenever you're uh, whenever you're stuck to the tar baby of life Whenever you're running around the periphery, you're not at this this centre that's able to have the larger perspective. You can kill yourself at the periphery when, quite often, just one one crucial move at the centre, you know, would accomplish um, would accomplish a hundred times as much. And the same ability to appreciate uh, the greater perspective of life is uh, in our personal relationship with creation is the same the same relationship we have with in poetry i'm looking at what i call the phenomenology of of uh, conversation uh, which is your exchange with anything you think is other than yourself so how do you deepen those conversations between you and a colleague between you and your industry between you and the rest of creation on your are out for a walk with the dog, you know. Um, and uh, there is a way of doing it, actually. There's a way of practicing having a more beautiful mind and a more beautiful presence, whether that's a leadership mind or just a more generously human mind. Yeah. And, of course, that mind is mind-body. It's actually about being in the, in, uh, more fully in the physical body, more fully in your inheritance whether that's an inheritance of difficulty and woundedness or it's an inheritance of the gifts and powers of your your cultural perspective and your particular life you know and to bring those to bring those together yeah so the way that I work is I you know I, I have hundreds of poems memorized my own and others, and i uh, I recite and work with them often repeating lines and working with <coughs> stories or perspectives as i recite the poems and, and actually create the experience in the room rather than talking about something you know the the evocation of poetry physically recited actually creates the experience in the room if it's a good poem it doesn't work with bad poetry <laughs> and uh, and so everyone can actually dwell in this, and everyone has both a sense of real presence and an internal reverie where they they're, they're they're referencing experiences that they're having in their their difficulties in the workplace, or the challenges that come along. or create courageous conversations they have to have, either um, you know in the office or at or with their uh, spouse over the kitchen table at midnight, you know. So, so uh, that's the way I work with the poetry, and uh, and I, I did write a book called The Three Marriages that brings looks at the way we. The, uh, a real conversation brings all these three promises together, you know, the promise to another in a love relationship, whether it's officially a marriage or not, the, the marriage in our work to our vocation and, uh, and the relationship to that tricky, movable frontier, looking back at us in the mirror, you know, who like another person in the marriage and like our work is constantly changing and constantly inviting us into a new dispensation in our lives. One of the fascinating dynamics is that you always meet the new you in the form of a stranger. And you always meet your new work in the form of a stranger. And you always meet your spouse in the next epoch of your of your marriage or relationship uh, in the form of a stranger. And you always turn away from them. You turn away from yourself. You turn away from the work. You say, that can't be it. That's not. What I planned, you know, that's not who I wanted to be, and uh, and so uh, the the invitation in the deeper conversation in poetry is uh, is to come to ground in in the place to which you're being invited, you know, not in an abstract way, but just because of the way you're made and the way the world is made. This is where the conversation has got you to. This is this is the this is. Uh, the conversation you have to have without knowing how it will, uh, how it will evolve or come to maturity.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Is it so? You, you were saying <clears throat> within that, you, I was interested that you always turn away from, from them. Is that because you might think the grass is greener rather than appreciate <clears throat> what, what truly that what you do
2: have? Well, that's what the abstract strategic mind tells you. You know, that's the excuse you give yourself. It's actually because it involves a kind of, uh, psychological metamorphosis, uh, which is, uh, which is almost like a death. Um, um, we've all been through relationships where the, the marvelous, uh, you know, romantic, uh, effervescence of the beginning begins to evaporate and you're, uh, they're suddenly in a much more serious conversation, and of course, in today's world of Tinder, it's one of the dy- one of the desperate dynamics. You know, in LA and San Francisco, is uh, is um, you'll often turn away and get back on Tinder in order to get back into the initial stages of the relationship. It's um, it's something it's something quite similar to that. You know, the the young masculine psyche, especially, doesn't believe that this is where a relationship will lead. You know. And I think it's the same thing with our work. We go into we go into our work or our career mm-hmm. in inverted commas in parentheses. Um, <clears throat> with uh, in quotation, quotation marks, uh, we go uh, we go into our work thinking it's about certain goals. As you mature into it, you find out that what you're about is something much fiercer and uh, much more difficult. And actually but something that will actually make you much more generous and uh, present. You know, you start your business thinking it's because you want to make a millionaire, make yourself a millionaire, Um, and then in uh, 25 or 30 years' time, you look around and you see actually what you did was create livelihoods for maybe 20 or 30 people or 50 people or 100 people. You know, you actually helped get kids through college, you kept... Households together, you <clears throat> supported other people's dreams, and you suddenly find that that might as be, have been as important as anything else you did. Yeah. That's really, um, really,
1: yeah, really thoughtful. We're going to have to go to commercial break, but I think uh, that's really helpful perspective to to not uh, not not be measuring life around maybe you know, a monetary gain personally, but actually all of the contributions that you made to help. You know, many people on your journey. Um, in a really, really helpful reframe. I think probably for a lot of people, we're going to go to commercial break now. After the break, uh, do join us. There'll be lots more. We'll be talking about the conversational nature of leadership, and there'll be lots more. Um, you know, ideas and thoughts uh, from David. I think that um, will you know help to reframe your thinking and really appreciate um, you know the importance of what you have now and uh, and your life journey. So, I'll be back again with you in just a
3: couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One to one mentoring and coaching
1: hi it's Chris Cooper I'm back with uh, David white and yeah, during the break uh, which unfortunately you don't get the opportunity to hear I was talking with David about um, about living the importance of kind of living in the now and being versus you know living a life which is about in this strategic future that you're moving towards and David I wonder if you could maybe you know share your thoughts with people about uh, you know that that kind of balance and how you think uh, people should um, you know manage their Manage their life such as they're really able to enjoy the full potential of it.
2: Well, you know, Chris, from a poetic point of view, you probably notice that in good poetry, the word balance and manage and full potential are never used, and uh, mm. <laughs> because they they cover over they cover over the actual accuracy of what's occurring. And so, it's not a balance uh, because that's not an accurate work balance. Just has us working harder at work and at home, to try and make up for something that's lacking. And so it's much more uh, much more of a more accurate understanding is that we don't get to choose between the two, actually. If your life is all rest and all being, uh, you'll soon be very frustrated yeah, and feel something lacking in the horizon of ambition in your life. <clears throat> and if it's all ambition, you'll lose the person at the center. So a good life is always a conversation between, between what we want for ourselves ahead of us, which will always change, of course, as we get nearer to that horizon and uh, enjoying the pilgrimage as we go along. I have a little piece just appears in my most recent book, The Bell and the Blackbird. And this is the, uh, this is the title poem, actually. And uh, there's uh, an old meme in the Irish uh, literate, literate tradition of an Irish monk standing at the edge of the monastic precinct while he's doing his work in the garden, and he hears the call to prayer. And of course, uh, metaphorically, whether you're a Christian or not, that's the call to a deeper life, to the deeper perspective. But at the same time, he hears the blackbird outside of the monastic precinct calling to him. And uh, he says, first of all, when he hears the bell, he says, that's the most beautiful sound in the world. But then he hears the blackbird calling, announcing spring outside, and he says, "And that's also the most beautiful sound in the world." And in the the poem by Patrick Pearse on this on this image, you're not told which way he goes actually, <clears throat> because we don't get to choose. Uh, we don't get to choose between going deeper, you know, being an improved version of ourselves, having a bigger perspective, being more centered, more mindful, and having to deal with the world as it comes to our door in the form of the, the blackbird song. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, so this is the piece I wrote. It's called The Bell and the Blackbird. The sound of a bell still reverberating, the sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, the sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, asking you to wake into this life, or inviting you deeper to the one that waits. Either way takes courage. Either way takes courage. Either way wants you to walk to the place where you'll be nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you already know you'll have to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself without any meeting at all that radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship, as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of the world, crying hallelujah. As you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of the world, crying hallelujah. So this is a very powerful understanding in all of our great contemplatives, and, uh, careful traditions and that the world is constantly coming to your door to invite you out into it. Yeah. And, uh, and part of, of the entrepreneurial and, and, uh, leadership test, of course, is to find out the way that the world is knocking on your door that no one else has heard yet. Mm. And you could say that Benson was a brilliant at doing this, yeah. But it's deeply in the Zen tradition, is deeply in our monastic period tradition, you know, to be able to appear at that frontier and to have a conversation that feels entirely your own with creation. And because it's entirely and it's completely satisfying, it's a full... <coughs> <coughs> it's a full measure of what they used to say in the theological tradition, your incarnation in this world, your ability to hold the conversation. But when you get caught at the periphery, There's nothing that calls to you, literally in today's world, you know, through our devices, email, texts, uh, the phone ringing, uh, all the different beeps that keep us on alert all the time. And uh, then you lose this radiance, you lose this sense of radiance, of the giftedness and gratitude of just being able to See the color blue, for instance, if you have, if you're able to see. Uh, it's a total miracle if you look at the science behind sight. It is absolutely astonishing. Uh, if you look at the ability of a human being to walk, is, and I had sciatica a few years ago, and I, I really began to see what a miracle it was for a human being to stand upright and, and walk down a street. Yeah. And I used to, have, <clears throat> I had a good friend, John O'Donoghue, who was a philosopher, poet, you could call me a poet a philosopher, uh, but he was a priest for 17 years and he used to say, and a, a, a Catholic priest, and uh, he used to say, you know, the great miracle in life is not the turning of water into wine or the passing of the Red Sea. The great miracle in life is that there's something rather than nothing, and that we get to be a part of that something, actually, for a very short span of time.
0: Mm-hmm. And...
2: Uh, there are people in this world who would give every last penny they have to be able to swing their legs over the side of the bed, stand up and walk across the room. And they can't do it. You know? And yeah. they would give everything they have to be able to do that. And, and we swing our legs over the side of the bed, you know, walk across the room and start saying, oh, my God, what have I got to do today? <laughs> it's <too much>. Yes. <laughs> We're complaining about existence. So part <clears throat> of that. Ability to transcend, I wouldn't say transcend, I'd say make sense of the natural traumas, uh, difficulties, and wounds of being in the world, is this ability to carry this internal sense of presence, gratitude, and, you know, in having such, you could even say, radiance, yeah.
1: So, so David, to do we? What, what, what are you saying? Are we... Um... Do we not appreciate normal enough?
2: Exactly. Yeah, the everyday, the uh, the miracle of the everyday. You know, the ability to see your daughter's face, um, or to hear the laughter of a friend, um, or to feel you know the warm atmosphere of an English pub on a Sunday afternoon. These are all you know remarkable qualities. So, and I think one of the diagnostics of <clears throat> overwork of stress of uh, being wounded, in your know, PTSD is is being, is generating a kind of fear of the everyday. Uh, there are things that are getting in the way of you. There are other people, are obstacles. Um, the sky isn't, isn't, uh, isn't conforming to how exactly you want it to be that day. The sun is in your eyes, you know, and sort of brightening your perspective mm. and, uh, and, uh, so holding the conversation between these two is really, really quite remarkable. And there's nothing, you know, better than, you know, in the workplace when someone who's in a leadership position is also fully alive at the same time. They've got a sense of humor, they've got a perspective, they're generous. They understand the place of failure <clears throat> because of this perspective. And, uh, and they're good to be around. And, uh, and they're great mentors in our life, and they're great inspirations. And it's usually because they're also anchored in the the miraculous nature of the, of the everyday in some way.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, completely agree. I, I think there is a real in those people who do you know, inspire, <coughs> and do engage through their leadership. There is a real uh, groundedness and a and a centeredness, a, centeredness and a calmness. I think that uh, you often. You know that make, means they sort of stand out like shining jewels in the in the workplace.
2: Yes, and they don't need to be hundred percent paragon of perfection. It's usually that when they do off, go off the rails they'll have a laugh about it. Or mm. um, they'll, mm. they'll say, Wasn't I an idiot yesterday, but that's what happens when we situation you know? <laughs> It's uh, they're uh, they're not trying to be um they're not trying to be something they're not, you know, and this, you know, brings us, our educational systems are terrible, terrible about uh, allowing children to live with the unknown and with the present. You know, we're constantly badgering kids, <coughs> putting them through the same torture that we went through in unconscious ways, because we went through it, yeah? So, um, yes. and uh, we've created an educational system, uh, particularly in Britain, I'd say, because I went through it myself, and it's even worse than it was when I was a kid. Um, it's an education system that's constantly beating the unknown out of us, you know. It's constantly asking us to to trigger that part of the mind that that labels things and gives you the answers, whether it's the real answer or not, you know. It's what does the teacher want me to say? What does the book want me to say? Um, it, uh, <clears throat> alienates me from my original conversation. So I do think, you know, one of the strangest looking back at it in the mirror is uh, is a new form of education for our children, and then we're seeing so much stress in kids, you know, and yeah. all of our <clears throat> all of our systems, like the way we create lawyers, the way we create doctors, uh, the way we see it, they're forms of hazing in a way, um, and quite in in which the original the original quality is lost completely. I always say, if you really want to kill your love of poetry, you would enrol in a university uh, course in uh, in uh, literature, you know? because the way it's taught, the way it's taught will take care of your of your love of the subject. You know? So mm. this is one of the, the you were at an amazing inflection point, I think, where the old system is uh, is showing itself. To it's an emperor with no clothes. And I read about these cheating scandals, you know, people taking phones and these things. I say, I say, bring it on, more of it. Kids need to cheat more because, uh, because what they're being asked to do is so artificial and so strange. And in what workplace are you told to go into a room for two hours and work by yourself with no help from anyone else? Yeah, and uh. Yeah, and uh, and to come up with answers without any help whatsoever, without any reference to any larger context. Yeah.
1: So, um, <clears throat> so, so David, as a parent, parent then, yeah, how do you bring more of this kind of mindful thinking, you know, in, to to your children? Because it's easy to spend, you know, you've. Yeah i have I have two children. My boys are eight and twelve. and yeah I, I, I frustrate myself sometimes because I find them, you know, I find myself you know saying You're spending too much time on their you know on your devices, and um you know, maybe you should be doing this, doing that. How do you I, I try to introduce them to amazing people, and they 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 meet through this show, they've met some amazing people who've, who've who, you know, amazing feats or. Um, uh, you know, at the top of their game in their place. But I, yeah. so I try and inspire them that way. But I, you know, sometimes find myself on this, you know, in a bit of a frame of don't do this, do this, uh, and uh, I, I really want them to kind of blossom from within. How do you best nurture that as a parent?
2: Well, I think we'd need a whole new uh, interview program for that one. It's a huge <laughs> subject, and it's everything from alternative forms of education, such as the Waldorf approach. You know, both my kids went through the Waldorf system early. um, And it's a strange system because they seem to be learning absolutely nothing as they're going along, which is another kind of frustration for a parent, too. But at the (laughs) end of it, they all come out um, uh, um, just brilliantly. uh, It's my experience anyway, um, engaged in life and in all the subjects, yeah. And uh, and then I did. Uh, I also, with my children, did some homeschooling, which is uh, is uh, definitely uh, a way to put stress on a parent, but also marvelous at the same time. And mm-hmm. I think just as a parent, getting out with them, and uh, you know, rather than saying getting off your device, saying, uh, "Come on, let's go down and uh, go out on that rope swing or whatever," you know, depending what yeah. age they are. <clears throat> Although we might. Also, want to do it with an eighteen-year-old. <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so it's an enormous subject, but I think, I think, just keeping the caring, imaginative perspective alive is the best one, and always subverting the goals that the school <clears throat> and society are presenting to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, I was uh, writing poetry from when I was little. I, uh, um, and uh, art, history, these were, um, uh, and literature, these were my joys at school. I, I did go to a good school, a grammar school, in, very old grammar school in uh, the north of England, in New Yorkshire, with great teachers actually, one or two startling exceptions to that. <laughs> but, uh, um, when I was 14, I saw Jacques Cousteau sailing across our little television set. You know the great French marine zoologist, and I couldn't believe yes. there was work like this in the world. so I gave up my uh, I gave up my uh, my uh, my poetry, my English, my history, my art, and put myself into the salt mines of biology and chemistry and physics, because that's what would get me to this horizon, you know of living on the good ship Calypso following the life of the dolphin and uh, and then years later, I emerged with a degree in marine zoology and, uh, <clears throat> and I found that everyone else had been watching Jacques Cousteau they were all graduating at the same time. <laughs> there weren't enough calypsos, there weren't even enough dolphins. It was 0.5 dolphin per graduate when I came out. But uh, by sheer luck um, and luck of the Irish, of my Irish mother, I got this incredible job in the Galapagos Islands you know, as a naturalist guide but when i got to those islands i found that none of the animals or birds had read any of the zoology books that i had read yeah. and uh it was really the place was overwhelming and after i'd been there for a few weeks <clears throat> i really wanted to go home when i looked back you know i might not have said it to myself i said okay i've been here you know i wanted to go back to my zoology books i wanted to go back to british society and irish society i wanted to um I wanted to be kept in the manner to which I was accustomed. And Galapagos was totally terrifying, both from a point of view of trying to hold it with with Linnaean scientific nomenclature, you know, Latin names and boxes that we've been taught to put the world into. It was also terrifying from a point of view of mortality, of being witness to things dying on a daily basis. Mm. And uh, so I was terrified on on lots of different psychological levels uh, and but that's where i really woke up into the world as a philosopher actually i would say because i realized that my identity didn't depend on any inherited beliefs i brought to the world yeah. and my identity depended on how much attention i was paying to things and creatures and human beings other than myself yeah Lo- I was right. no attention to anything other than myself or my own thoughts. There was actually no identity. I was just an enclosed loop that was in no commerce with anything other than myself. And uh, so I started to put together this phenomenology of conversation, I suppose. I wouldn't have called it that then. But it was looking at the way my identity grew deeper or broader and more generous the more attention I was paying. And I saw, at least, you know, from the experience I had living there for almost two years, that, uh, that, uh, my, I went through various things according to the depth of, of attention and intentionality that I was, that I was being invited into by those astonishing islands. Uh, and there are really different levels of, of both, uh, presence and self-forgetfulness all at the same time. The self-forgetfulness leads to a deeper form of presence, and the deeper form of presence leads to a form of self-forgetfulness. And yet you're still able to operate in those places. You can still name the world, but you just know it's a temporary name. You know, you don't take it literally as if you actually know something that's static. You see everything as more of a conversational, uh, more on a conversational spectrum. And you could, you can take that to a relationship with a colleague, you know, or a customer. You can take it even deeper to a relationship with a partner, a loved one, a spouse. Um, You're in, you're in a, you're in a conversational spectrum of understanding. Yeah, we give names to the world in order to control it. We give nicknames to our wives, our husbands, our partners. You know, both through affection, but also. To say that we we know who they are, you know and we've we they're also nicknames are all, always uh slightly attempts at control over another person uh, this is my label for you, it's affectionate, it's fun, uh, but I've got you, you know you don't you don't have them at all <laughs> not unless you're making up a new nickname every day. <laughs> you're just making me you're
1: just you're just gonna have to finish yeah. that commercial break. brave but you just reminded me um when, i remember traveling across uh across europe with some friends when i was at university and uh they nicknamed me because i was the only one from the north they were from the south they nicknamed me named me ned of Cleethorpes, and i hated it <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I, hated well, I I have i have uh trauma from, from going to Cleetops when I was a child. So, <laughs> I understand actually, your aversion.
3: Yeah?
2: <laughs> the most boring place in gone, the world. It's gone to We're
1: going to break now. I'll be back with you again in a couple of minutes and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the necessary conversations that leaders need to have and some maybe maybe some uh, sort of techniques and then um, we'll be um, finding out a little bit about Envitus as well, like, which is uh, a program that David... Uh, involves uh, leaders and organizations in and has a huge impact in, on them. So, we'll be back with you again
3: in just a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? You were tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hey, chris Cooper here. I'm with David David White, and we're talking about conversational leadership. And I wonder, David, I know you've got several steps in really deepening this conversation that could be really helpful for, you know, for leaders and people operating in business. So what, what, um, you know, what do we need to know?
2: Well, um, what we need to know is that, is that whatever we're going to know, it has to be felt equally in the physical body as it does in our, in our abstractive intellects. Yeah. And uh, so they're all a kind of coming to ground in reality or coming to ground in your, physical body and of course the physical body is where we felt all all our wounds and vulnerabilities and it's one of the reasons that we abstract ourselves out of them we often think that a profession you know as a doctor or a, a lawyer an engineer will protect us from heartbreak we don't say that to ourselves but unconsciously that's often one of the one of the uh um the benefits we want from a protected profession. Um or one that gets natural esteem without you having to do anything else for it. <laughs> yes. Um but um um all real conversations lead to heartbreak because why? You care about what you're involved with, yeah. The only way you can not have a sincere conversation in your work, in parenting, um in a psychological relationship to yourself is not to care, yeah. And the only way you can not care is by not being in the body, by abstracting yourself into goals that your strategic mind has conjured for you, rather than your heart and mind together. So uh, um, so the first step is to stop having the conversation you're having now. People always laugh when I say that. And, and, uh, but then they laugh in recognition, because when you think about it, if you come into a new leadership position and one of the first questions you have to ask yourself is what's the conversation this system, this group of people, this endeavor needs to stop having? Yeah. Now, what's the inherited conversation that's getting in the way of having a real conversation with customers, with the future, with what lies ahead? And, of course, I had to stop when I arrived on the shores of Galapagos Islands with my as a freshly minted uh with a freshly minted honors degree in marine zoology, um, I had to stop having my naming conversation. I had to drop my Linnean nomenclature of the world. And, of course, that nomenclature was useful for a certain platform in which to look at the world, but it's not the world itself. And, uh, um, you know, for instance, in Galapagos, um the Linnaean names for Galapagos finches are uh, are completely irrelevant in a way because they're evolving so quickly that the whole uh, gradation of speciation is a is a spectrum. Yeah. So uh, you know, if someone says, "What's that little brown bird over there?", your answer as a guide should be, "Well, do you want a Latin name, or, or would you like to know what's really going on?" And of course, mm. people say, "I don't want to know what's really going on. Just give me a name, please." <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that's actually the next. It's really interesting to ask yourself, what's the conversation I need to stop in my work right now? And the interesting thing is if you're in a position of responsibility or leadership, you could go to all the people who report to you and say, what's the conversation I need to stop having as a leader? And they will actually tell you right away because they already know what it is. And in fact, many of the conversations around you by the people who report you are simply ways of protecting you from the knowledge of your own flaws and difficulties. Yeah? And the yes. names you've given to things that aren't true. Yeah? So what names do I not need to stop saying that aren't true anymore? What's the name I've got for my wife, my husband, and my partner, which is not true, actually. It makes me feel that I know who they are and what's going on. What's the name I have for my children? Eh? And uh, how do I hold them hostage to those names? Eh? What's the name I have for my customers or for what I deliver to the world through my systems? Eh? It could probably be something else that's more real for people out in the world. So this is a really powerful question. What's the conversation I need to stop having as a leader, as the central entrepreneur in the system, perhaps? What's the conversation we all as a team in that organization, need to stop having. And the interesting thing, again, is you can send all your people in the team off into separate rooms and have And I've done this, and have them come back and report, um, and they will all actually more or less identify the same dynamic. In other words, we already know what the conversation is. That needs to be stopped. Even if we haven't talked about it, everyone's own imagination has identified it. And uh, it's quite remarkable, actually, how everyone already knows what it is that needs to stop having, that needs to stop happening. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes it's just the way we're holding the conversation that needs to stop happening. So that's the first threshold. And of course, you could spend a whole day on this. And in my in BTAS, uh, um Institute for Conversational Leadership, we do we spend, you know, quite a bit of time on this first, because it really informs all the other deeper steps. Once you've stopped the conversation, it immediately precipitates you into the second dynamic, the second step, which is making a friend of the unknown. Because the proclivity for human beings is once you've stopped one conversation, once you've stopped one story, once you've stopped giving one name to the world, you immediately conjure up another. because you've been rewarded all your life for, for having e- easy answers. You were never rewarded in the classroom for saying, actually, it's too early for me to know it about yeah. this, uh, you know, myth. Yeah. And uh, if you're asked about Hamlet when you're 13 years old in an English classroom, you the real answer should be, could you give me another 35 years? Yeah, that's the yes. play. totally terrifying. Yes. No 13-year-old should know anything about Hamlet. You know? And it should be in brown paper wrappers and and with the... With a, a line, a title on it saying, No one under 40 should read this play. Yeah. And uh, so, um, and then they'd be reading it behind the bicycle sheds, of course, instead of smoking. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, making a friend of the unknown is the second step. What is my relationship to the unknown? Well, most probably because of our worldwide educational systems, I try to banish it right away i 'm mm-hmm. uncomfortable with with sitting with something and not knowing you know of just letting it mature and speak back to me in its own voice um, when i 'm a parent, I always think I have to have the answer for my child so i 'm uncomfortable sitting with them and not having an answer for them instead of having a real conversation with them and finding out actually who do I have here, what kind of unique perspective on reality do I have as a child? Uh, um, So those are the the first two steps. And they're also steps back into the physical body, which is the body that's also felt, as I said earlier, all the wounds and difficulties of life. So you're actually stepping down into the ground of your own woundedness. You're stepping into the ground of your own perspectives and your own gifts in the world, too. But those gifts don't come without understanding all the ways you're reluctant to be here, all the ways that you've been hurt by life or by your work, yeah. um, and and uh, you have to step down onto that Dantian ground, um, and uh, and learn some self knowledge. Yeah. Wow. The third step is coming to ground in reality, which is also coming to ground in self knowledge.
1: D- David, we've got um. Uh, it sounds like this Embitis program is something that would be really great for people to have the opportunity to come and spend some time with you and learn about these steps. We've got um, just got a couple of minutes left. I wonder if you just wanted to finish on a on a short poem, and then uh, I'll just very quickly wrap up.
2: Yes, we get people from all over the world, including the UK, actually, come to Whidbey Island in the Puget Sound, and it's really three three and a half day. Uh, set conversational sessions a year, so an intensive way of keeping it alive alive in your own in your own uh, life back at home. So a uh, poem to finish. Uh, this is called Just Beyond Yourself, and it's the invitation just to get out of yourself and into a real conversation. Just beyond yourself. In my most recent book, Bell in the Back there. Just beyond yourself. Just beyond yourself. It's where you need to be half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. Half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. Just beyond yourself it's where you need to be. Half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. There's a road always beckoning. There's a road always beckoning. When you see the two sides of it closing together at that far horizon, and deep in the foundations of your own heart at exactly the same time. When you see the two sides of it, there's a road always beckoning when you see the two sides of it closing together at that far horizon and deep in the foundations of your own heart at exactly the same time. That's how you know it's where you have to go. That's how you know it's the road you have to follow. That's how you know it's just beyond yourself and it's where you need to be just beyond yourself
1: wow. well th- David thank you so much for joining us today uh, I, I just think it's been uh, certainly one of my I think this is the 291st interview but this is going to be one that I will remember for a, a long time really um, got me thinking on a very very deep level um, a huge thank you for joining us today I hope you've enjoyed being on Lovely. the show
2: it was a great conversation so really enjoyed it wish you well I'll thank you, and now.
1: you and you too David and for more information, uh, go to uh, www.davidwhite.com. That's David, W-H-Y-T-E That's W-H-Y-T-E dot So do, um, do check Davidwhite.com and uh, you'll find out lots more information about Invitas and the like. So thank you.